0: Good evening. So continuing this theme of being on a journey with tonight's talk, we're going to be covering quite a lot of ground. In fact, for some of you, it might feel like a bit of an expedition. But don't feel like you have to take in everything that I'm going to be talking about, because I'm going to try and cover quite a wide range of the Buddha's teachings to really give us some context for the rest of the retreat. So don't be overwhelmed, just trust that whatever is relevant will stick and the rest of it you can come back to later if you're interested. So last night I invited us all to uh, reflect on why we came on this retreat and our aspirations for being here. That was only about 24 hours ago, and perhaps for some of you, they feel like a very distant memory as the reality of this rhythm of sitting and walking starts to set in. And I know for myself, at this point in the retreat, there's often one very recurrent question, and that is, why am I doing this again? What might have seemed like such a good idea when you signed up perhaps doesn't feel quite as appealing at this point in the retreat. Because the first days of a retreat, they often are hard. We're dealing with the physical discomfort of the body as it gets used to sitting for longer periods of time. And we're dealing with the mental discomfort too of not having our usual coping strategies to uh, available to us. So in some ways, it can feel like we're going through a bit of a detox. And like any natural process, it does just take time. So if you are experiencing these different kinds of discomfort, I'd just like to encourage you, one, to know that you're not alone, and two, to try and have patience with the process, trusting that it does get easier with time. So, there's an old saying you probably are familiar with, if you're going through hell, keep going. And hopefully you're not actually experiencing hell, but whatever discomfort you might be experiencing, just to know that it's going to change. And whatever those experiences are, if we can learn how to relate to them in the right way, they can become very powerful catalysts for the deepening of our practice. They become actual resources for the strengthening of these two wings of wisdom and compassion. And this isn't easy because our default long-term habitual reaction to anything that's unpleasant is usually to try and get away from it or get rid of it as quickly as possible. And even very experienced meditators can have this uh sort of unconscious belief that if they were just doing the practice right, then at some point they'd end up in this state of bliss and live there happily ever after. But this is a serious misunderstanding of what this practice is about. It's not about trying to make us immune to life's inevitable difficulties. It's about changing the way we relate to those difficulties so that we can relate to them with more skill. And because our ingrained habits are so strong, most of us need a a kind of a multi-pronged approach to learning how to change them. So one of the aspects of the Buddha's teachings that I really appreciate is that it is so multifaceted, it is so comprehensive and so holistic. The path of practice that he laid out gives us a wide range of different methods to work with. Um, Broadly speaking, these methods can be classified in terms of two main approaches, practices that develop wisdom and practices that develop compassion. So as you may remember from the retreat description, these two are sometimes referred to as the two wings to awakening. And we can see very clearly with that metaphor of the wings that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So I'll be talking in more detail about each of these over the course of the retreat. But for now, just a couple of simple definitions. Wisdom in this context is another word for insight, for clear seeing, for understanding the deepest truths of our human experience. So the wisdom wing of the practice includes insight meditation, which rests on these four establishments of mindfulness that we've been exploring today. And compassion is our capacity to turn towards what's difficult to meet our own and others' pain and challenges with kindness, with care, with courage. So the compassion wing of the practice includes what are traditionally known as the four Brahma-Vihara practices. These are specific types of meditation that many of you are familiar with, perhaps at least the first one. These are practices that cultivate heart qualities such as kindness or metta, compassion itself, appreciative joy, and equanimity or the balanced heart-mind. And later on in the retreat, we will be doing some of these formal meditation practices that cultivate these four skillful states. But for now... It's never too soon to start bringing them in informally. So whenever we're able to soften around what's difficult, to begin to incline the heart and mind towards kindness, that's a very valuable opportunity to strengthen these heart qualities. And as I was saying earlier, meeting what's difficult with wisdom is really at the heart of these Buddha's teachings. And the core of these teachings, in terms of wisdom, is probably the four noble truths. I'm assuming that most of you have heard, at least heard of these four noble truths. There are a set of teachings that the Buddha is said to have given almost immediately after he attained what's known as Nibbana, or Awakening, Liberation, Enlightenment. And it's said that um, after he had this experience in India approximately 2,500 years ago, he came up with these Four Noble Truths, which are really about understanding suffering. And that was pretty much all he was interested in. So for the rest of the 45 years of his life, he spent wandering around India trying to help people understand their own suffering and understand how to free themselves from it. So I'll give you a very brief overview of what these Four Noble Truths are. We touched into them with Wyatt earlier today. So the first one, very simple statement, usually translated as... There is suffering. The second noble truth, also very simple, there is a cause of suffering. Third noble truth, there is an end to suffering. Fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to this end of suffering. Now, some, for some of you, these teachings might be very familiar. For some of you, they might be new. And perhaps hearing from them for the first time, they sound a little, well, not very interesting, not very inspiring. All this talk about suffering. And the statements themselves are so short and simple as to almost be meaningless it takes a little bit of effort to unpack them and to start to understand how we can make sense of them in our own lives and use them in the way they were intended as a means to freedom. So I do just want to acknowledge that one of the challenges with the Buddha's teachings, as many of you know, they're arranged in endless sets of numbered lists. And this is because originally these teachings were transmitted orally So they were memorized, recited, memorized, recited through generation after generation until they've ended up being available here. So numbered lists were a device that helped with that process of transmission. But for us in this context, our minds tend not to work that way. And numbered lists can sound a bit like just another to-do list or a shopping list, a liter of milk, a pint (laughs) of... loaf of bread yeah whatever so I've been thinking of these lists as being a little bit like camping food you know those kind of dry packets of stuff that uh, you can get to take when you go hiking they're totally desiccated and dehydrated to make them very light and portable we can take them anywhere but we can't eat them just like that we have to mix them with water and cook them and then they become nourishing So in a similar way, these lists, we have to take them in to the context of our own lives and explore them and sort of chew on them and live into them so that we can get the nourishment that they can offer us. So just a little bit about the context of the the Buddha's life and how these Four Noble Truths came about. As I said, he was... uh, born in India about 2,600 years ago, into a wealthy family. And as a young prince, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, and it's said that he lived uh, in relative luxury for about the first 27 or so years of his life. He was able to take advantage of all the material comforts and sense-pleasure indulgences that he possibly could until at the age of 27, he had some kind of, like an existential crisis, and felt like his life wasn't particularly meaningful, it wasn't really going anywhere, so he, according to the mythology, he abandoned the palace, and he went off on a spiritual quest, he studied with all the great teachers of his day, he was a very diligent student, so he, one by one, managed to not only equal where they were, but realized that What they were teaching was limited and he had a sense that there was something still more that could be explored. So eventually, after this period of fairly hardcore asceticism, he realized that punishing himself through common practices such as not eating and sleeping on beds of nails and those kind of things weren't really getting him anywhere. He realized that he'd become afraid of pleasant experience pleasant mental experience. He changed his orientation to pleasant mental experiences and not long after that had the experience that became known as Nibbana, awakening, enlightenment. And after that experience is when he gave us the four noble truths. So this first noble truth that there is suffering it's possible that we can hear the word suffering and think, well, that's pretty heavy duty. You know, my life has its ups and downs, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I was suffering. But as with many of the key words in the Buddhist uh, teachings, this translation into English as suffering is not fully accurate. The Pali word that's translated as suffering is dukkha. And this word dukkha has a much broader range of meanings than the English word suffering. So I'll start with the classical definition of what the Buddha said he meant by suffering. So when he said this first noble truth in its expanded form, this is Tanasaro Bhikkhu's interpretation. He says, now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. So here Tanasaro is translating dukkha As stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what one is, what wants is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So, got it? We could probably spend the whole rest of the retreat just exploring that one truth. But I think to try and keep it a little simple, we can all agree that birth and aging and death are stressful. Not getting what we want is stressful. Having to be with people we don't like is stressful. Not being with people we do like is stressful. And elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha used the same word, dukkha, to refer to more subtly unpleasant aspects of experience. He talked about dukkha as being one of the three universal characteristics that are common to every experience. Everything we experience is impermanent. It's constantly changing. Right? Because it's constantly changing, it's unreliable. It's not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And so in that sense, it's dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. It's unreliable because even pleasant experiences don't last, and when they end, we're left trying to find the next hit of pleasant experience. So the Pali word dukkha here, it covers a very broad range of suffering, from the most extreme anguish at one end of the scale, all the way through to just that basic sense of something being not quite right, something being unsatisfactory. So, I always like to to check some of you have done this exercise before, but just like to see if in this moment right now, anyone is experiencing one hundred percent complete ease, happiness, and satisfaction. I can't quite see, but I'm not seeing any waving hands, so I'll assume that the answer is no. Because if we really look at our experience, there's always something in the background or sometimes in the foreground that's not quite right. A slight sense of, oh, if only I had had time for another cup of tea before the talk, then I'd be happy. Or if only I wasn't so sleepy, then I'd be happy. If it wasn't so hot in here or so cool in here, then I'd be happy. Or if she wouldn't keep going on and on and on about suffering, then I'd be happy. So you can notice if there's any slight trace of unsatisfactoriness even now. Because this is the first noble truth. There is dukkha. And sometimes just being able to name it, oh, it's just dukkha. Just naming it, knowing it as that helps it release. So right there, there can be a moment of relief. And on the bigger picture too, it can be a relief to hear this truth acknowledged. I don't know about for you, but for me, for a long time, I felt like I was doing everything society told me would bring me happiness and satisfaction. I kind of did all the right things and ticked all the boxes, and yet somehow I wasn't satisfied, wasn't really doing it for me. And then I heard this, these teachings and I realized, ah, oh, okay, there is unsatisfactoriness. It's not my personal shortcoming or my failing. It's just that life isn't always going to give me what I want, which is the opposite message that we get in mainstream society. So again, it can be a relief to hear, oh, this isn't my personal problem. It's just the truth of how things are. And it's important to keep the truth of unsatisfactoriness in mind even as we practice. As I said earlier, this is not about making us immune to suffering. Because if we think it will, then we can often unconsciously approach the practice as some kind of self-improvement project. And if I was just doing it right, if I was just meditating properly, then I would never again experience anything unsatisfactory. And I often do hear people say things to me like, well I've been meditating for two years and I still get angry with my 11 year old son. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> and my senses you're expecting it to be otherwise because anger is going to arise unsatisfactoriness is going to arise we have to learn how to relate to it more skillfully not to take it personally but even the buddha had people get angry with him try to discredit him even try to kill him he still suffered from backache headaches he died of I think, some kind of food poisoning. So he wasn't immune to life's discomforts and challenges. But the way he related to them was profoundly transformed. So I'd like to just uh, read a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi who summarizes this uh, first noble truth pointing out how it moves from the most sort of biological forms of suffering like birth and aging and death through to more existential forms of unease and dissatisfaction. He says, The Buddha starts with what is close at hand With the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, Dukkha shows up in the events of birth, aging and death, in our susceptibility to sickness, accidents and injuries, even in hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events in the, and Sorry, it's hard to read without my glasses. So this is another form of Dukkha. Aging of the eyes. Okay, so it appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations, by unpleasant encounters, by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from Dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they do not last forever. Eventually they must pass away, and when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running away from the one and running after the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die to give up the identity we spent our whole life building, to leave behind everything and everyone we love. So, (laughs) it can be quite sobering to hear this truth of dukkha laid out so boldly. But fortunately for us, the Buddha didn't just tell us how it is and then leave it at that. He didn't say, life is miserable, too bad, deal with it. He outlined three more truths, truths that help us move in the direction of freedom. So there is good news coming, hang in there. Mm -hmm. It's not all doom and gloom. So in the second noble truth, he went on to identify the cause of Dukkha which is craving, or more literally, thirsting. So I'd like to read you the words of the Sutta, again from the translation by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. This, practitioners, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving accompanied by passion and delight, craving for sense pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And again, this word craving can get in the way of understanding because we can think, well, yeah, there's things I want, but I wouldn't say it's craving. But again, this word craving points to a whole range of experiences of intensity from that basic sense of wanting things to be different all the way through to the most intense addictive kind of cravings. And the craving for sense pleasure shows up as that habitual, sort of addictive tendency that when something is unpleasant, what do we usually do? We grasp after an antidote. So, if we're in our ordinary lives, we might grab a glass of wine or eat a tub of ice cream or binge watch some TV series or swallow a handful of painkillers or call a friend or pat the dog. Or There's many, many different ways that we just take the edge of our discomfort. And of course, none of those things are wrong or bad in themselves. But if we're unconsciously, habitually just going after pleasant to get rid of unpleasant, as I was saying earlier today, we never actually learn how to meet life's inevitable difficulties. We stay in our comfort zones. And often those comfort zones get smaller and smaller if we don't keep training in this capacity to open more to the full spectrum of our experience. So this second noble truth of the cause of craving, sorry, of craving being the cause of dukkha is asking us to look more closely at how we respond to unsatisfactoriness. And this energy of craving has its counterpart in the energy of not wanting, of resisting, of pushing away. So resistance is also in, um, included in this word craving. And as a the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young, I've shared his formula for this relationship between suffering and resistance. He's boiled it down to the formula S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. In other words, pain is not optional, but resistance is what makes the suffering more intense. So the more we can meet our pain without resistance, the less we're going to suffer. And the opposite, the more we resist our suffering, our pain, the more we will experience dukkha. So that's one reason why mindfulness has such a strong emphasis on bare awareness. We're training in this capacity of non-reactivity, non-resistance, simply knowing our experience exactly as it is. And this is as I've been emphasizing, definitely a training because it's not the way we most naturally relate to what's unpleasant. So the third noble truth is that dukkha comes to an end through the letting go of craving. This letting go of craving and resisting enables us to find Peace, to find freedom. So, just to say that when we hear all this talk about suffering and distress and uh, unsatisfactoriness and clinging and craving, we might start to feel a bit discouraged. Just looking around the room, I'm not seeing any kind of beaming faces of lightness and joy right now. But this is where this is all leading. Buddhism sometimes uh, is misperceived as having a pessimistic worldview because I think people tend to stop too soon in their understanding of the Four Noble Truths and not recognize that the last two are about the end of suffering. They are about happiness, ease, peace, freedom. So the Third Noble Truth is that there is a cure for dukkha. It is... Letting go of clinging, letting go of craving. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go, rejecting of that same craving. In other words, just let go. Yes? <laughs> Ready? One, two, three. Done. Not so, not so easy. In a way, even though it's painful, part of the paradox of this whole path is that we're addicted to our craving. We're addicted to our clinging on gross and subtle levels. So I've shared with some of you, there's quite a powerful parable for this from Greek mythology, and the translator Stephen Mitchell uses um, this myth to illustrate how we get so caught in our own addictive suffering. It's a myth of Sisyphus, which some of you might know. Sisyphus was apparently a king who was uh, getting caught up in all kind of self-aggrandizing projects. And as punishment, he was told to roll this huge boulder up a hill It'd take an enormous effort. And every time it got to the top, it would roll back down again and he'd have to push the same boulder <coughs> up the same hill, over and over and over again. And this is how Stephen Mitchell reframes that story. He says, We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock, He cherishes every roughness and ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. So I don't know if that resonates for any of you, but certain phases and aspects of my life, that feels scarily accurate. And one of the advantages of being on a retreat like this is that we often get to see how much, that, like Sisyphus, we're actually contributing to our own suffering through this process of identifying with it, taking it personally, making it solid and permanent and letting it define who I am. And it's true that most of us do have this tendency to pay a lot more attention to the difficulties in our lives and what's going well. This is not just due to personality, to whether we're optimists or pessimists. As most of you know, neurosciences discover that our brains are hardwired to pay more attention to what's difficult than to what's pleasant. So it's not surprising that we overvalue or put more emphasis on difficulty. And that's partly why in the mindfulness we've been doing so far, I've been asking you to pay equal attention to what's pleasant and easeful and relaxing as to what's painful, challenging, stressful and so on. To try and even out that inherent negativity bias and as I was uh, responding earlier to some of the uh, questions this morning a big part of this practice as the path develops is learning how to become familiar with skillful states of mind to learn to recognize when there is perhaps at first a fleeting moment of ease or a few moments of peace, or some momentary calm or happiness, or perhaps even at times bliss, to tune our radar towards those, to learn to recognize them and to help them deepen and strengthen. So in those moments when the mind is at least momentarily free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. Free of craving. Right there is a moment of nibbana. And this nibbana, according to some teachers, is a natural part of human experience. So there's a passage by the Thai forest master of the last century, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who really emphasizes this relationship to nibbana as being about cultivating temporary moments of freedom. Or nirvana, so that over time, those temporary moments start to become more common. They start to join together and eventually become much more the default setting of the mind. So he says, Temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements, i.e. greed, hatred, delusion, craving and so on, were with us day and night without ceasing, Who could ever stand them? Living beings would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well. It is a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free, free from defilements or desires. Whenever this happens, a little nirvana comes in and the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So I like to share that quote because I find it very encouraging. You know, Usually when we hear terms like awakening or enlightenment or nirvana, they can sound like some lofty, sort of distant, far-off, maybe-one-day kind of experience. But if we can recognize, even in the course of this retreat moments when the mind is temporarily free of those afflictive states, right there we're starting to train in this quality of nirvana, this experience of nirvana, and to begin to make it more frequent, to last longer, and eventually, according to Ajahn Buddhadasa, to become complete nirvana. So this is the promise of the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is the path that helps us to get there. The path that I referred to earlier, the noble eightfold path. By now you might be thinking, oh no, eight more factors to go. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and cover all of them tonight. Just to name that these eight factors... Uh, qualities that we cultivate not only on retreat, but also in daily life. So the Noble Eightfold Path is usually translated in terms of right, but it's right in the sense of being appropriate or wise or skillful, not in the sense of right and wrong. So we have factors such as right view, right intention or thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And we need to develop all eight of these factors together to get the full benefit of what the Buddha is offering us here. And as I said, I'm not going to go into all of them now. We'll probably come back to them later on in the path, in the retreat, just to say that all of them reinforce and support each other. So all of those factors of the path are designed to help cultivate wisdom, clear seeing, understanding, and compassion. So the Four Noble Truths are a training in wisdom. And because this wisdom takes time to develop As you all know, there are times when dukkha feels to become very strong and the wisdom doesn't feel to be strong enough to meet it. And it's at those times that the second of these two wings of awakening is so helpful, and that's compassion. So as I said earlier, compassion is this capacity to turn towards what's difficult and meet it with kindness, and where possible, help it to release. So compassion is very different from our usual habit of relating to pain with resistance and denying and avoidance. And so it too is a quality that we can gradually develop. And we can start by training in some of the more minor difficulties that we might encounter even right here on retreat. So just talking to some of you today It's powerful to notice how do we relate to the more sort of minor irritations or annoyances or disappointments or frustrations. Instead of compounding our own reactivity, right there, can we just acknowledge, oh, this is dukkha, this is painful, this hurts. Can I care about it? Can I wish to be free of it? Can I meet it with kindness rather than resistance? So there's a lot more that I could say about compassion, but I really, out of compassion, don't want to overwhelm you tonight. So I'm going to leave it for here tonight to let all of the words and the ideas hopefully settle and dissolve. And again, out of compassion, I have um, decided to shorten the schedule for tonight. So rather than having a walking, a sitting, a walking and then another sitting, we'll have a walking period now and then come back at 8.15 and make the 8.15 sitting the last one of the night. So we'll finish at 8.45, which means that Kirsty, you're relieved of your bell ringing this evening. So thank you for your attention. As I said, that was uh, covering a lot of terrain. So I hope you can just take in what feels immediately relevant and leave what doesn't feel relevant right now aside and trust that it will become useful later on. Thank you for listening. Let's just sit in silence for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.